Hi, Thumbmatics. Welcome to the show. Thanks for tuning in. Today, we have an amazing and special guest for you. We have David Silverman, director and producer for The Simpsons. Let's welcome David to the show. Hi, David. Welcome to the show. Hi. How you doing? Hello, everybody out there. Nice to, nice to be here. <laughs> you actually work on one of the most iconic animation shows Ever. We can't wait to ask. It's been on for, for, it's been on for a couple of years, about three, four uh, decades. No, it's been, a, it's been an incredibly <laughs> long time. And if you ask us what's the secret to our, uh, our longevity, we all say we don't know. <laughs> and we, uh, we love being on it. We love the fact that people seem to like it because that's probably why it's been on so long. So I don't know. Yeah. It's, How- it's, how can you go it's wrong? So How can you go wrong with ya kayamba, dude? <laughs> kayamba, actually, but yeah. <laughs> so, well, everyone wants to like just ask me, like, so growing up, did you have a favorite film that you just loved? No, I have several favorite films. <laughs> I don't have one. I don't have one of anything. People ask me that all the time. Do you have a favorite of fill in the blank? And the answer is no, I don't have a favorite. I have a myriad of favorites because I would say as an artist and a filmmaker, you don't have one film, I don't think. You have so many because there are so many things that you're inspired by and so many things to choose from. Because it can't be, like, one of the earliest influences I had was uh, uh, Chaplin. Uh, my parents, when I was five years old, took me to a double bill of Modern Times and The Gold Rush, which did make a huge impression upon me, uh, not only for Chaplin and his comedy, but for silent films in general. And that led to a love. And you know, at five years old, I was very impressed. I it was so nice, I said, you have to take me twice. Um, and um, uh, me and my brother, we both loved it. And uh, uh, I think the assembly line scene in Modern Times always, to this day, is one of my favorite scenes, uh, just in terms of visual and cinema and just what you can do without dialogue. But on the other hand, <laughs> I also love dialogue. And later in life, I got very enamored by the films of Preston Sturges. Oh, uh, my favorite, my favorite, the Weenie King. Great, comes from like, you know, uh, the Great McGinty and Christmas of July and Sullivan's Travels, the Palm Beach Story, Lady Eve, uh, Hail the Conquering Hero. I mean, they're all good folks. Uh, Miracle of Morgan's Creek, you got to see them all. They're really, like, inspiring. By the way, that would be uh, the Coen Brothers' favorite filmmaker is uh, Preston Sturges. And if you see Preston Sturges, you'll understand why. Particularly if you see Sullivan's Travels, because the book he wants to make a movie out of is called Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou? A little trivia for you all. I assume many of you people know that. But anyhow, a great influence. And in the, the, probably the most amazing screenwriter of the, the genre of screwball comedy. And just in terms of writing, and then he became the first writer-director. Um, very, very interesting story how he did that. He went to he tried to sell his film that he wrote on spec called The Great McGinty, and he said Paramount, he said, I will I will direct it if you buy it for a dollar. And wow. they said, okay. Of course, then the uh, legal department says, well, we can't do that. It doesn't look good. We have to pay you $10. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, and he became the first time you saw the credit, I think the first time, it said written and directed by Preston Sturges, at least in the talkie era. That was the first time because he was a screenwriter, was also a director, very quickly led the way for people like John Houston and, of course, Orson Welles, and et cetera, et cetera. 
but um, so, yeah, I mean, there's two already. And of course, Alfred Hitchcock, another big influence on me as a kid, uh, particularly when I saw North by Northwest. And I say particularly the crop dusting scene, a remarkable scene done in pantomime. Uh, and, and when you, I still look at it, just like, wow, just the planning, because it's completely without, basically, basically without dialogue. Just the whole whole thing. It's amazing montage of imagery and just timing because it's all timing. There's no music. There's, no, there's nothing to there's nothing to cut to. It's just a space of uh, figuring out how much time do you want for this shot, how much time do you want for that shot. Very inspiring. Uh, then of course I have to point to the films of Disney. When I was a kid, I saw Mary Poppins. I must have seen it about twenty times which was the only way you could see it again, of course. There was no home video, because that would always sell out. Um, and uh, uh, I would say, believe it or not, not only the, the, the film was complete magic when it first came out in 1964 or 65, it was the most magical film that anyone had ever really seen, and this combination of visuals and matte paintings and animation. And the animation in that film really did inspire me more so than probably other things to become an animator. And I'd already been enamored with animation. As a kid, I loved watching, uh, you know, uh, the, of course, Looney Tunes cartoons and the Bugs Bunny show. And, of course, uh, Huckleberry Hound and Yogi Bear and Quick Draw McGraw. And then there was uh, the Beanie and Cecil show by former uh, Warner's animator uh, Bob Peppett. And, uh, and, of course, the Rocky and Bullwinkle show, which I thought was amazing, even though I didn't understand half the jokes. But my dad did, and I do explain them. Um, so, the, by the way, that's a very different eclectic group of styles of animation. You have the Warner style of animation, you have the Disney style of animation, you have the limited animation of, of uh, Jay Ward and the Rocky Bullwinkle. But as a kid, I loved it all. I was like, I, I get it, okay, they have more dough or more time, whatever. But it's all great storytelling. So, everything. And a final thing that influenced me, which is in film, but I recommend it to anybody who wants to be a, who's a cartoonist and interested in drawing, you might even know, is a guy named Walt Kelly, who did a comic called Pogo. And uh, brilliantly drawn, brilliantly written, and incredibly well written, and incredibly well drawn, because Walt Kelly was a former Disney animator. And so it all keeps going, all these influences keep coming back to me because one of my favorite Disney animators is Ward Kimball who did the great um, Mad Tea Party scene and Alice in Wonderland. Well, he had his best friend at Disney was Walt Kelly. So I'm thinking all these connections that like keep, keep connecting. Another great influence uh, in terms of design is Mary Blair. Mary Blair is a brilliant designer at Disney uh, and a color stylist, but also great. Well, she designed It's a Small World After All. That's probably the, the biggest like influence in terms of like the physicality of her style, especially the clock facade out front. But also she did a lot of illustration for the Little Golden Books. And the Little Golden Books were very keen, you know, um, uh, sort of things that they, you'd read as kids. And I didn't realize I was just getting like assaulted from all sides by all these people who were <laughs> doing everything. <laughs> it's amazing because you look at like, you, you look at all these other people, you know, there's there was like a, a guy named... Uh, Phil Eastman, who did great children's books like Go Dog Go, former Disney animator, uh, uh, actually probably former story uh, storyman. There was a funny cartoon strip called Big George, done by a guy named Virgil Parch, another former Disney storyman. You know, so it's it's interesting. It's it's amazing. By by the way, uh, 
many animators I, I, I was became pretty good friends of uh, Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnson and they said during the depression uh, Disney Studios like this big WPA work project for artists because it was hardly there was less work out there for illustration and commercial art because it was a depression somebody's working at Disney that's why I had this incredible pool of talent back um, so yes yeah, so the influences are vast and the final, final influence was music. Um, you can't see it, ladies and gentlemen, but I have many a tuba in the back here. <laughs> but uh, music has played a great uh, part in my upbringing. And actually, music connects to the art that I first did and first uh, got, let's say, sold, you know, from doing a caricature of the National Symphony Orchestra in Washington, D.C., where I grew up in the D.C. area to when I first got to LA and doing drawings for the Los Angeles Times and the music critic at the, at the time, the late Martin Bernheimer, and I started drawing for, for him. So, um, so that sort of got the ball rolling for me artistically was doing, oh, and then later uh, that was, that led to doing drawings for something called Alfred Publishing. And, um, and that's how I was doing illustration as well as studying animation at UCLA. Oh, so, wonderful. Yeah. So you grew up in D.C. So how, when did you start drawing? Were you a little kid just drawing or how did you get interested in drawing? I think I, I started drawing at four and I haven't stopped since. In fact, <laughs> I'm drawing something right now, but I got to stop and take time out and talk to you all, lovely people. <laughs> um, no, I started when I think everybody, maybe most kids start drawing. I just didn't. I couldn't think of a reason to stop drawing where all my other friends stopped drawing. I said, no. Let's keep drawing. It's fun, and uh, and I got more and more influenced. My parents were very supportive uh, because I guess I showed a, a proclivity for it. But uh, nonetheless, they certainly didn't dissuade me from it. Uh, my dad certainly didn't dissuade me by reading us. Me, and my brother, he would read us from Pogo when we were six years old, and even though we didn't understand half of it, I, I think the, <laughs> the drawings were like getting seeped into my brain, <laughs> and like. I always ch chatted my dad, if you don't want me to be a cartoonist, you shouldn't have read Pogo to me. Uh, <laughs> but, oh, and the other thing, too, my dad was very much interested in, like, showing us, here's the Marx Brothers, and here's Laurel and Hardy, and here's Buster Keaton. He's a big Buster Keaton fan, which I adore Buster Keaton. That's one of, another influence would probably be Buster Keaton, uh, uh, obviously. And um, so, and, you know, and here's the, the artwork of UPA, you know, the uh, great experimental cartoon makers of the 1950s. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, we, we saw we saw all these things, not to mention taking us to like, you know, the opera and the ballet and, you know, uh, Gilbert Sullivan and symphony. And you know, it's interesting, I was looking it up, because I, I was look, noticing that, uh, I was looking up when I first saw Modern Times when I was a kid, it was in New York City at the Bleecker Cinema, uh, not there anymore, it was an art house, a famous art house at a, uh, like 1114 East uh, Bleecker or something like that. But uh, I was also noticing that there was like a, I don't know, there was a production of, uh, of some, some like a opera and the top seat was like 450 or something like that. Wow. I regret 1962 dollars, but even that's like $35 by inflation or 40 bucks for top seat. It was much cheaper to see great, you know, you know, entertainment like that. Same with Broadway, you know. See Broadway shows for like about, about the same amount, you know. So it was easier to get to see culture. Uh, <laughs> I got to see a lot of culture, and all that sort of poured into my head. 
and helped me as a cartoonist. And I have to tell you, uh, there are many, many animators who also have an affection for music, either just knowledge of music or musicians themselves, and often very good musicians. So there's something about animation and maybe cartooning as well and music that goes hand in hand. Certainly, it's always a case of comedians. Many comedians are fine musicians or, you know, drummers or something like that. The rhythm of music, the rhythm of comedy and timing. So it all, it all goes into, into play. But all this got poured into my brain, and I decided to be a cartoonist and then wanted to be an animator. And that's why after two years at the University of Maryland in the D.C. area, I transferred to UCLA to the animation workshop. And that brought me to the fair city of Los Angeles. <laughs> so, so you just said, I'm going to be an animator. And then you, you did. You became like, uh, you know, you've been working for one, the, the top TV show probably ever in animation ever. There's, no, there's nothing to even compare. There's, there's not even a TV show. Is, the lo- is it the longest running TV show probably, right? Longest running scripted primetime show. Yes, yes, by, by, by quite a bit now. Congratulations. And yeah, that's an interesting thing, you know, just like uh, I was drawing this during that. And then, then the Tracy Ullman show came up because we, I was working on a film called One Crazy Summer, uh, 10 minutes of animation in it. Uh, and uh, I met this wonderful animator and uh, a filmmaker, Bill Kopp, who was directing the animation in this movie, which is directed by Savage Steve Holland. They were they were pals at CalArts. And one of the other animators was a guy named Wes Archer. And Wes Archer had worked for a small company called Klasky Chupo. Klasky Chupo got the Tracy Owen Show contract in 1987 to animate Mac Rating stuff. And that's how I got involved in The Simpsons at the very beginning. It was us, uh, the three of us animating on The Tracy Owen Show. And then, uh, then Bill went on to follow his own star, and uh, Wes and I continued on the Tracy Ullman Show until we animated 48 Tracy Ullman Show shorts. And we worked hard at it because, if nothing else, we wanted to, you know, experiment with animation for ourselves and, you know, have something for our portfolio. Um, and we didn't know we were going to be started working on an iconic TV show, but that's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, one of the things that probably helped that along was Who Framed Roger Rabbit coming out in 1988, which got, I think, people interested in wanting to do animation again on TV because it was such a big hit. That was sort of like the big turning point in the fortunes of animation, I would say, because prior to that, it began to look like, is animation going to be something or should I concentrate my energies in commercial art, which was a choice I was thinking of. But no, uh, Roger Rabbit changed all that. And of course, <laughs> Jim, James L. Brooks always said that uh, I, I um, approached him after having a few cups of courage, as he says, in other words, maybe a little drunk, and introduced myself and was talking so enthusiastically about animation and probably said something like, we should make The Simpsons an animated series. He said that kind of gave him, if not the idea, but certainly the enthusiasm, just because he had never met somebody on the animation side. So it gives me a lot of credit for that. So it's a good thing I got drunk at that party. <laughs> cup of courage. Would you like a cup of courage? Yeah. Maybe I need a oh, cup of courage. Yes. Maybe I need some of that cup of courage that worked for you. <laughs> you know, Carry your courage. That is your poison. poison. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to bottle that up and sell it. We can promote it on the show. <laughs> <laughs> so what happened is Wes and I became directors. You guys direct. We said, sure, why not? And uh, so in 1989, we started uh, from the Tracy Ullman shorts, the Tracy Ullman uh, to the Simpsons 
TV show. And the first thing I did was design the opening title sequence, working with Matt Grenning and Sam Simon. And Wes worked on the turnarounds for the models because when we were the Tracy Holman show, we didn't really have model sheets. We just looked over each other's shoulders and how are you drawing Homer this week? And how are you drawing Bart this week? And <laughs> we're like, well, we got to codify this now because there's going to be a lot of other people drawing. Um, and that kept, that happened. And then um, I just, then, uh, you know, then the show became a big hit. And, you know, I was supervising animation director and given a producer credit and it was great. And then I got a call in 1996 uh, for, from DreamWorks about the possibility of being a director. Now I've been working on The Simpsons now since 87, so it's been nine years. And I thought, well, this can't last forever, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, how would you How would you know? You wouldn't know. And it seemed like an opportunity to direct uh, uh, animated features. So I went to DreamWorks and worked with a wonderful guy named Will Finn, and we started the ball rolling for the Road to El Dorado uh, as co-directors. But then I got a call from Pixar. And I said, I'd love to live in San Francisco for a little while, see what it's like. And so I went to Pixar and ended up working with a, actually a friend of mine. I met him before, a lovely guy, Pete Doctor. Pete Doctor, you may well know, was a brilliant director, now uh, the chief creative officer at Pixar. Um, but he was working, he was doing Monsters, Inc. So I came on to be co-director on Monsters, Inc. And uh, I had a wonderful time and learned in both places, learned a lot about uh, doing uh, animated features, which helped me when I came back to The Simpsons, uh, again, to be supervised director, but really to be there to uh, direct The Simpsons movie. And so it all worked in that regard. And a nice big symphony. You have just been putting like all the musical notes together and it's singing. It's coming up roses, roses, roses. Wow, wow, what a fantastic story that you just, there's so many people that like are trying and trying and there's some people that are just so successful. I Sometimes I think it's meant to be, but your like creativity and your talent and your passion just comes across. And uh, I see so many musical instruments. How do you even have time to play a musical instrument? <laughs> I think I would have, but I don't really. I try as much as I can. But uh, I have a, I have, you know, I have probably far many tubas than I really need, but you know, I can, I can quit buying them anytime I like. It's easy to stop. I'm not addicted to them. Uh, <laughs> but I also have some other instruments. This is a, you can't see this, ladies and gentlemen. This is a bass trumpet. Uh, it's like a trumpet, but it's uh, an octave lower, so it has a trombone range. And uh, I can sort of play it because the mouthpiece is a trombone mouthpiece, which is bigger. Uh, I'm not really good. I, I'm not a good hand on the trumpet. Uh, it's a little too small for me. I, uh, and you're in a band, right? Can you share with our audience your band? And that's a cool name. <laughs> there's a band called Vaud and the Villains. Vaud and the Villains is a great name. It's, it's, uh, it's a very big band. And, uh, you know, we'll, we, obviously this, uh, the, the, this whole situation of the last year has made it very difficult to play. So hopefully we'll get back to I get back to the, the show again, I hope. I'm also in another band called the C-Funk Brass Band, which is a, uh, a funk brass band out of Long Beach. And I, I play, with, play with them. And, uh, uh, yeah, so, and, uh, and of course, when I'm at uh, Burning Man, I play in the Burning Band. Um, and also occasionally with a band up north called the Los Tranquil's Woods Community Marching Band. 
Wow, marching band. Wait, you're in a marching band. Vaud and the Villains. I love that name. And where were you playing? Like where, if our audience comes as a tourist or they live here, if they want to come see you in Los Angeles, do you play in Los Angeles or where do you play? We don't have a, we don't have a regular spot, if that's what you mean. You know, we, we get a gig when we can get a gig. So, I, uh, and obviously, <laughs> there have been very many gigs, ladies and gentlemen, the past year. Maybe you've noticed. I guess, <laughs> yeah. So... Oh, would you like to play something for us real quick on the show live? <gasps> okay, great. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to have David Silverman, and he's going to play something for us. Let's see if it doesn't distort too much. Is it something, is something of yours? Because Spotify, we have to like have permission. Is, is it something original? Well, this will, this will be public domain. Don't okay, worry about perfect. that. Perfect. Was written in the 18th, late 19th century. That's amazing. That's so beautiful. I mean, that's a bit, how much does that um, tuba weigh? It's a tuba, right? I'm, I mean, you could tell that I'm not that skilled in music. <laughs> how many pounds? 23. 23 pounds. Wow. And you have some beautiful equipment. I wish our audience can see. But um, so, yeah. So, so David, I wanted to ask you some questions. Like, uh, when you were doing the film version of the animation Monsters, Inc., and was there a difference between TV animation and film animation? Can you give us any tips? Like, what what is the big difference? Yes. The main thing I would say, when you do film animation, I would say uh, you discover the film and the storyboarding of the film. TV animation is such a fast on a schedule that the script is actually king and you end up like kind of, uh, especially for uh, primetime uh, kind of, shall we say, sitcom style animation, the script is king and you storyboard the script. But in the film world, this is, I would say the primary difference is you have a script and it's just kind of the blueprint and the storyboard process is much more of a story writing process with the board artists. So when you have a screenplay uh, uh, writers on um, a script for a movie, especially a Pixar, a Disney, DreamWorks, anyone, uh, Illumination, all these sort of films, it's a really a misnomer, you know, who wrote the screenplay because the story department had a big part in writing it as well. Not just visualizing it, but actually writing material, coming up with story material, coming up with lines, coming up with jokes, visual and verbal. A lot of that comes in the story department, not just on who's credited on the screenplay. <clears throat> so um, that is probably the primary difference, I would say. And getting that and cracking that story in the storyboard in the film is a very difficult process. And just most times you start out with this one idea and it's a different idea when you're finished with it or it's the same idea but the story takes turns you did not expect it and part of it, part of it we all know that going in when we're doing it we say okay this is a story that we have this we've got to get we've got to throw something up on the wall and uh literally getting it up on reels and then see where the story takes you it's kind of like you know it's it's a lot like uh you know workshop you know like for like a theater theatrical workshop or something like that it's the same thing. You're, you're in there with a group of creative people, story artists, and you just kind of hash it out and figure out that story 
and then everything else hopefully falls into place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and there's a big vast thing about, about that too, in terms of coming up with a style and coming up with the art direction and coming up with the production design and the sort of the design sensibility and you know, and then of course all the things, particularly you know, we're doing CG. Uh, what what challenges are you <laughs> are you opening yourself into? No. Oh, that's amazing. And I want to ask you real quick, um, was there any characters that they d designed for you in The Simpsons, or did you ever get to do any voiceovers for fun, like an Alfred Hitchcock moment? <laughs> well, I guess I have. I mean, I've, I've physically appeared a few times on the show, uh, usually as an editor, but on, at Burning Man, I play the flaming tuba. You can look it up online, folks. Uh, yeah, the tuba that shoots, that's a season fun that shoots flames out of the top. And we did an episode where we would go into Burning Man, or as we call it, Blazing Guy, and they made me a character in it, and they also gave me a few words to say. So I've had a few lines as myself, as the Flaming Tuba Guy. Oh, I love it. I love it. Flaming Tuba. <laughs> yeah, and so amazing. And then, so how, how do you go about, um, you know, if anyone wants to like try to be an animator, do y'all have any workshops or programs or are y'all, do you ever hire anyone or it's just a show that doesn't need anybody because you have like the same people probably working for years and years, right? We have, I mean, with people can apply. I mean, most people that apply have probably gone to a school like Cal Arts or, you know, UCLA or USC or Sheraton in, in, in Canada and other, other places where they studied on their own. But I mean, it's, yeah, it's, 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 uh, like that, you know, people uh, studying to be animators who apply to become uh, layout artists. I mean, we're one of the few, I think we're the only uh, show now that actually employs artists to do key animation before we send it over to our Korean studios to do the in-between and the final painting. Uh, but we do all the key animation at our studio in town, <clears throat> you know, key posed out, basically. Uh, and, uh, in Korea is mostly doing the in-between work. So, and we're like the, one of the last, uh, studios doing it that way. I mean, some do it to a certain extent, but we do it very extensively. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, occasionally we have openings. <laughs> I can't think of that. I'm not an HR. I'm sorry. I don't really know what to do with that. So, so I want to know. So, um, also, do you? What are you working on that's coming up? Did you? What you do during COVID? Did you write or anything? Were you? Uh, what were you doing for fun? And what's coming up for you that we can? Um, share during the during, during COVID, the Simpsons kept going. We didn't stop. We all worked from home. I mean, where I'm sitting right now has been my office for the past year, basically. You know, almost to the day. Well, a year and a month now. Uh, so we worked, we didn't skip a beat. We, we continued working. We did full seasons and we're on to, we're on to the next season. I also worked on a show called Duncanville as consulting producer. It's a really great show. I highly recommend it. It's very funny. It's extremely funny. It's, uh, uh Amy Poehler and Mike and, uh, Julie Scully. Mike Scully was a sh showrunner of The Simpsons for four seasons and he's terrific and his wife is terrific. The book, very funny writers. And it's an Amy Poehler does two voices, does the voice of Duncan, the 15-year-old kid, and also the voice of his mom, and she's amazing. I mean, you hear the two voices, you can't believe it's the same person. Uh, and, uh, and it's a great vocal cast and a very funny show. Um, I finished a film just before COVID that's going to come out at some point called Extinct. 
written by three Simpson writers, uh, Joel H. Cohen, uh, Rob Zednick, and John Frank, and co-directed by my friend Raymond Percy, former Simpson artist and director. Uh, lately, then went to when he went to uh, uh, to uh, Disney, uh, and also not only was a story artist but also a voice artist. Uh, he was a voice of the sloth in uh, Zootopia. Anyhow, so uh, that's kind of an interesting. It's a really film. It's not Simpsons, but it's a lot of ex-Simpson people. It's a very funny CG film, uh, and it came out beautiful looking. And uh, I don't know how we did it so fast, but we did. <laughs> yeah. So, so um, they can check out the in. Uh, it's called X. What is it? Extinct, right? Extinct. 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 And is that going to be? I'm not sure when it's coming out, but you know, it'll come out sometime. And where do people um, see, like, what, how can they keep up with what you're working on, David? Well, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> do you well, you can follow me. You can probably follow me at, on, uh, on, um, on Twitter, although I've been very delinquent lately, to be honest. I've been working so hard on other things. But I'm um, at Tubatron, T U B A T R O N. Tubatron on Twitter and Silver Ruti with one R, Silver O O T I E on Instagram, which I hardly ever post on, but I'll try to get better so you can follow me. <laughs> People say, What do you want to? And I said, Well, I'd like to tell you what I'm doing right now, but I can't really tell you because I've signed these non disclosure agreements. So I can tell you about them when they come out. <laughs> so you can you can um, join, uh, follow David on Twitter and his Instagram. And thank you so much to David Silverman for being with us today. Director, producer of The Simpsons, The Instincts coming out, and Dunksville, and many more good things to come. Thank you, David. Thank you. Great to talk to you. Thank you, everybody.